0: morning Uh, we're in Daniel chapter 5 so naturally I would love you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 45 Um, and that's not a joke open your Bibles to Isaiah 45 if you don't have a Bible you can look on with a friend there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you you can jump on the free Wi-Fi here in the sanctuary Um, use your device to do that and as always the scripture is up here on the screen 150 years before the events of Daniel chapter 5, God's prophet Isaiah wrote this, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed." I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. 150 years before the events of Daniel chapter five, God inspired his prophet Isaiah to speak these words and to write them down. They went on a scroll, they were tucked in somewhere in the temple. The nation of Israel knew about this prophecy, but there was nobody of significance on the planet named Cyrus for 150 years. And nothing like this happened. This prophecy went unfulfilled. People started to wonder what in the world is going on. This thing is just collecting dust. It's never going to happen. Until Daniel chapter five. I want to ask your forgiveness in advance this morning because I'm very, very excited. I'm going to go long. Push your lunch plans back an hour at least. And I'm fired up this morning about Daniel chapter 5 because what happens in this text is just absolutely extraordinary. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. May it change us as we know it, as we take it to heart, as we learn about you and ourselves. Transform us from the inside out. In the name of Christ, the people of God with enthusiasm said... Amen. Uh, Daniel chapter five begins this way. He says, King Belshazzar, to which we should respond in the same way that my five-year-old does, what the hey? Daddy, what what the hey? Who, who, what? What the hey? Here's why. Because in Daniel chapter one, we learn it's about 605 BC, right at the uh, end of the seventh century BCE there. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, sieges Jerusalem and takes all the young men out of Jerusalem that are the best looking and of nobility and they're smart and they're competent. And he begins to retrain them in the literature and language of the Chaldeans. He begins to impart upon them impress upon him over this three-year course of study, the language literature, and culture of the Babylonian empire. Four of those young men are named Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. Daniel raises up to prominence in the kingdom. And in Daniel chapter two, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He calls in all his wise men and he says, please interpret the dream. Please help me understand what it is. They say, we can't do it. And Daniel comes in and interprets the dream on behalf of God himself and says, because God is good and because he knows uh, the dreams and interpretations, I will tell you that this is the interpretation of your dream. In Daniel chapter three, those three men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are three threatened with death if they don't bow down to this statue of gold that Nebuchadnezzar has made for himself. And they say, no way, no how, even if you threaten to throw us into that fiery furnace, even if our God doesn't save us, we are not going to bow down to that God you told us to bow down to. In Daniel chapter four, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream where his his kingdom is taken away from him. And eventually that dream is fulfilled when Nebuchadnezzar goes absolutely crazy for seven years. And when I say crazy, I mean that he experienced what's called lycanthropy. He thought he was a cow for seven years, lived out in the field, ate grass, woke up every morning covered in uh, in morning dew. I mean, he went crazy until God restored his kingdom at the end of chapter four. And as a result, Nebuchadnezzar praised God. So all the people that we've talked about so far in terms of main characters are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, these four young Hebrew men that were taken from Jerusalem to Babylon in their early teens. And we know all about King Nebuchadnezzar who reigned for 43 years. Seven of them, he thought he was a cow. But 43 years in total. And so in Daniel chapter 5, when Daniel says, King Belshazzar, we should ask ourselves, who? What? And in fact, if you study history for about 2,550 years, history believed there was nobody named Belshazzar in the Babylonian empire. That was a literary fiction created by the author of scripture to help illustrate a point. So Daniel chapter five isn't true. These people didn't really exist, but God just wants to help us understand something about himself. However, in the last 50 years, and over 10,000 Babylonian written, uh, written documents, would confirm this, written documents that are 2,500 years old, is that King Belshazzar was in fact a real person and was reigning in Babylon in the events of Daniel chapter 5. Here's how we know that. King Nebuchadnezzar died and appointed his son, Amel Marduk, uh, king in Babylon. Listen, if you're pregnant and you're looking for baby names... Lovely. Love a little baby name here. This man is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture in 2 Kings 25 and Jeremiah 52. You can read those on your own times. He's mentioned by a different name, but you'll recognize it because they're so similar. This man reigned for two years and he was assassinated and replaced by Neriglasar, which sounds like cough medicine to me. It's very weird. And he's mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 39. Neriglasar reigned for four years before he, was, uh, he passed away and gave his kingdom to his infant son named Labashai Marduk, another fantastic name for a baby. People are doing Taylor and Brittany... You do Labashi Marduk that's a good name. and so he was an infant when he took over the reigns of the kingdom in Babylon, and when he was before his second birthday, he was beaten to death by a group of mutineers that were trying to take the kingdom back from those who rightfully had the kingdom because they were of royal blood and Labashi Marduk was the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, he was of royal blood, and so that group of mutineers said, "Well we don't have anybody of royal blood that we want to appoint king so will appoint Nabonidus king. So they did. They appointed Nabonidus king. And Nabonidus reigned for 17 years. Now, Nabonidus was a very interesting man because he didn't really want to be king. Nor did he have any royal blood. So realistically, he, he, he had no reason to be king. His kingdom was not vindicated, justified by his royal bloodline. So Nabonidus did a couple of things. One, he said, you know... Every king before me, it didn't go so well. Remember that nine-month-old that got beaten to death, right? Remember that other one that was assassinated? I don't think I want to hang out in Babylon So he set up his kingdom all the way across the Arabian desert, not his kingdom necessarily, but his personal home all the way across the Arabian desert, weeks and weeks journey away from the capital city of Babylon. In fact, Nabonidus of 17 years as the king in Babylon, he only spent three of those years inside the city of Babylon itself. The rest of the time he spent weeks and weeks journey away. And then the second thing that Nabonidus did was he said, you know what? I have no royal blood. So if you have no royal blood and you want to get royal blood, how do you get royal blood? You get married. And that's what he did. So he married either Nebuchadnezzar's widow or Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. We're not sure which one, but that individual that he married already had a son. And so when Nebuchadnezzar married into the royal bloodline, or when Nabonidus married into the royal bloodline of Nebuchadnezzar, he became an adoptive dad. Any guesses as to what that kid's name was? Belshazzar. And so what Nabonidus did was he named Belshazzar co-king in the Babylonian empire, co-regent. But remember, Nabonidus is not living in the proper city of Babylon, the capital. He's living weeks and weeks away. So he says to Belshazzar, you just run things from here. And Belshazzar's 36 years old at this time. He has unlimited resources. He's essentially king in Babylon, co-regent, co-king with his adoptive dad, Nabonidus. Nabonidus is out of the picture. As far as we know, he was a man of integrity. He was a non-warring king. He was a pretty good guy. Belshazzar was an absolute mess and he was a trust fund baby. He had all the money that he needed and none of the moral restraint. So this guy was a complete drunk. He was a sexual addict. He was a violent man. He was a nasty human being. We know that from history and I wanna prove it to you in the text. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. And we look at that and we go, wow, a thousand people getting around, they have a little meal, they have a sip of wine. That's not what happened here. We know from history that these types of feasts were not abnormal. In fact, Alexander the Great, when he got married, had 10,000 guests at his wedding. Could you imagine that? 200 years before Belshazzar, another king in the Eastern part of the world at that time had 65,000 guests at one banquet. And the food that's mentioned there, it's like they're eating ostrich and like ox. I mean, it's just like everything. If it walks, kill it, we'll eat it. That's what they did. And they would get super hammered and have group sex. I know it's PG-13, but that's what's what's happening. Like even modern times, people think we invented that stuff. That's been going around for 2,600 years. Belshazzar's doing that way back then. This is what's happening in that context. So he made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and he drank wine in front of the thousand. And when he had tasted the wine, (laughs) okay, this is what you got to picture. This is not Belshazzar going like this. Well, this has a very lovely nose on it. It's floral. I'm getting hints of black fruit and chocolate leather. I believe this is a Malbec from the southern region. This is a a very lovely bouquet, yes, it is. That's not what he's doing. This is what he's doing. (laughs) Oh, when he had tasted the wine. (laughs) That's where Belshazzar is. It's a euphemism for being three sheets to the wind. He's absolutely flammable drunk, okay? And he commanded that when the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar and father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So he says, you know, there was this time where my father Nebuchadnezzar, not his father, but kind of his ancestor, right? Because that's a euphemism there. His ancestor had sieged Jerusalem. And as far as we know, Nebuchadnezzar, he was conflicted, right? He went back and forth sometimes. He was a polytheist and a monotheist. But eventually, remember at the end of chapter four, he said, I give glory to God alone. God is the king of kings. God is the God of gods. He went on a little bit of a spiritual journey. So as far as we know, he never touched those, those goblets and those things that he had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. They just sat somewhere in Babylon. So Belshazzar says, hey, you guys remember those cups that my grandpa had? Get them in here. That's not in the text, but it's implied. Okay, so, so he says, taking out of the temple of Jerusalem, he says, let's let's all of us drink from those. So, so so here's what happens: He grabs them out of the temple, or grabs them out of the place where they were and begins to drink from them. Then then, next slide, please. They brought in the golden vessel that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and his king and his lords, his wives, his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Now, let me ask you something. How we think this is gonna go for Belshazzar? How many vote it's gonna go well? How many vote it's going to go poorly? You win. Immediately... Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Now, very interesting. Again, Daniel chapter five, a lot of historians and scholars said this wasn't real. It didn't really happen. Belshazzar wasn't a real guy. Now that we, now we know, and over 10,000 Babylonian documents from that era affirm it, that Belshazzar was a real guy. He was co-king in the Babylonian empire at the time. But the second thing is that there was no plaster back then. There was no plaster. So uh, the walls couldn't have been covered in plaster. That's what scholars and historians would say. And as a matter of fact, at the turn of the century between the 1900s or the 1800s, the 1900s, there was a man excavating Babylon, digging in the ancient city of Babylon. He found a room that was about 100 feet long and about 50 feet wide. It was the only room in the entire ancient city whose walls were covered in plaster. And and then, you know, they they kept digging and they found an elevated area in this room where a throne would have been placed, So so here's here's what historians would say and archaeologists who who have done this digging, right? We're almost 100% confident, 98% confident that we know exactly the room where this happened. Isn't that cool? You guys, that's cool to me. If that's not cool to you, find another church. Um, I don't mean that, I don't mean that, I don't mean that. Second thing is, it's opposite the lampstand. In this room, the lampstand would have sat next to uh, the king because the king had a crown on. They wanted the lamp to reflect off of his crown. So essentially, this human hand appears and begins to write words on the wall where it's most illuminated and everybody could see it. Isn't that cool? Keep going. It says, then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. This is one of my favorite verses in all scripture. I'm already I'm already starting to chuckle. This is funny to me. Um, because this this word here, his limbs gave way. Obviously, he's frightened, right? He's terrified. It's a human hand shows up right on the wall. His limbs gave way um, is a euphemism for his his bowels loosening. <laughs> what? <laughs> What's just happened? Drunk Belshazzar is so terrified that he's done what? He pooped his pants. (laughs) Oh, if you have your kids here this morning, I'm so sorry. Um, But this is the original language. This is what really happened. He's so afraid that his bowels loosen and he poops his pants. (laughs) (laughs) Give me a minute. you got to give me a minute. This is... I know I'm like eight years old. I understand that. I know my sense of humor is warped, but this makes me so happy. The king called in... Uh, loudly to bring in the enchanters the chaldeans and the astrologers the king declared to the wise men of babylon whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom again scholars have asked over time why is he making somebody the third ruler in the kingdom well why is he making somebody the third ruler in the kingdom because there's nabonidus and then there's him so there's only one more place to go right Right? So, we didn't know that until uh, we discovered that Belshazzar, I say we, as if I did any of the digging. I didn't do any of the digging. I don't dig. I, dig. I dig like smooth jazz. Like in that way, I dig, but like I don't excavate, right? So, he was the third ruler in the kingdom. I'll do anything for anybody, if make the third ruler in the kingdom, chain of gold, purple, the whole deal. And this is interesting because he calls in the Chaldeans. Does anybody remember these guys from previous chapters? How'd they do so far? They haven't done squat yet. Right, so he calls in the Chaldeans and these little guys march in, right? You know, they come in, yes, sir. You know, and it's like, can you read the writing on the walls?" like, no, sir. And then they march out. Like, that's what happens. Like, they have nothing. And it's every chapter, like, you're repeating the same thing over and over. They haven't done anything for you yet. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known the king, the interpretation. They couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed. His lords were perplexed. Then the queen, and the queen. And this is interesting. The Bible tells us that the queen, but remember, the, the Bible's already told us that all of his wives and concubines are in the room. So likely, this is not Belshazzar's queen. This is not Belshazzar's wife. It's likely Nebuchadnezzar's widow who comes in the room because of the words of the king and his lords, comes into the banqueting hall. The queen declared, "O king, live forever. Typical greeting for a king back then. Let, let, let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. And also... What does that smell? She didn't really say that, but, but I'm sure she thought it. Okay, so then she says, keep going. Uh, There's a man in your kingdom whom is, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, Your father, your father, the king, he's got to repeat these things over and over because this guy's hammered, right? And again, this is not your father as in he fathered you, but he is your ancestor. Your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Stop right there. Daniel's role in the kingdom is what? Chief, right? Chief. Just mark that in the back of your mind. Keep going. Keep going. And because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain, explain riddles, solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So then Daniel was brought before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. What did we just established about Daniel's role in the kingdom? What is he? He is chief. And 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 Belshazzar addresses him as one of the exiles of Judah. Do you feel it? This is disparaging. It's very derogatory. He's reminding Daniel, you are a slave here in this kingdom. Now watch this. Between chapter one, when Nebuchadnezzar seized Jerusalem, took all those young men from Jerusalem and began to reestablish them as leaders in his kingdom, between then and now, Seventy years have passed. Daniel's in his mid-80s. He is chief of all the smartest guys in the kingdom. And this 36-year-old drunk punk is going to talk down to him. Now, if I were Daniel, there'd be some biscuits thrown, right? Watch what Daniel does. uh, Belshazzar goes on, he says, I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellence and wisdom are found in you. Quick side note. How do you think Daniel would have responded to the spirit of the gods is in you? How many gods does Daniel worship? Derogatory again, isn't it? And, And he says, now the wise men, next slide, the enchanters have been brought before me to read this writing, make it known to me its interpretation, but they could not show me the interpretation of the matter but I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing, make known to you its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said, I love this. Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. And in other words, what is Daniel saying? He's saying, I can't be bought, friend. The God of Israel cannot be bought. Now I'm gonna tell you what happened. I'm going to tell you what the writing says. I'll make known to you the interpretation, but it's not going to be for this garbage. O king, the most high God, Nebuchadnezzar, gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, All peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. Daniel is not saying, as a matter of fact, that Nebuchadnezzar did these things. He's saying that the most high God, Yahweh, gave Nebuchadnezzar total freedom and reign and sovereignty in that particular area that was gifted to Nebuchadnezzar. So he could have done these things if he wanted to. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken away from him. For those of you who were here this last week, when we say he was brought down from his kingly throne, how far down? To lycanthropy. He believed he was an ox or like a cow. For seven years, never went inside for seven years, ate grass covered in the morning dew. That's how far God humbled him in order to restore to him his reason and give back to him his kingdom. Daniel goes on, he says, remember, he was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was made like that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules over the kingdoms of mankind and sets it over whom he will. Now, this is great to me. Because Daniel is essentially preaching a sermon. That right there was his intro. Very long introduction. I would just clue you in on something. I'm not done with my intro yet this morning. Very good preacher, long introduction, little bit of conclusion, and then they send you home. That's what I learned from Daniel today. So here Daniel gets to the meat of it, ready? And you, his son, Belshazzar, one, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this, but you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. And you and your Lord, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which don't even see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath. And whose are all your ways you have not honored? So then from his presence, the hand was sent and this writing was inscribed and this is the writing that was inscribed. Now stop right there. The text at this point changes from Hebrew to Aramaic. So these words would have been written in the conversational language of the time, Aramaic, written on the wall. And so the uh, translators of Scripture have chosen to leave these words in Aramaic because uh, Daniel is about to define them here in just a couple of minutes. Everybody understand what's happening here? They're not just like random words or whatever. It's an actual language left in Aramaic, and Daniel's going to define them. Those four words are mene, mene, uh, repeated at the front end, tekel and parson. Daniel goes on, he says... This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, that just means to count. That's all that is. Just means to count. So God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought them to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Your moral virtue is worthless, my friend. That word there, tekel, just means to weigh. And then peres, which is the singular form of the plural, Parshin. It's got an U on the front, but you don't pronounce the U, so it's just Parshin. And it means to divide and your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Now watch this. Do you remember the dream from Daniel chapter two, where God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream and he says there was a head of gold and a body of silver, and then there was iron and clay and this thing and that thing and all that stuff happened. And we talked about the four kingdoms that are represented in that statue because Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, you, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. And then there will be a kingdom that comes after you that is the body and arms of silver. That's the Medes and Persians. It's the Medo-Persian Empire. So Daniel interprets the dream. Then Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck. Proclamation was made about him that he should be third ruler in the kingdom. I guess Daniel responded, okay, whatever, I'll take him. Right? Then Belshazzar, uh, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. It's a very interesting statement, very matter of fact, that that night, Belshazzar was killed. We know from history, from Greek historians, Herodotus and from Xenophon, that at this time, in fact, it was October 539 BC. We, we know that for a fact from history. October of 539, the Medo-Persian Empire had been marching across the known world, conquering people one at a time and conquering nations one at a time. They had come to the city of Babylon and they began to besiege the city of Babylon. Now, the city of Babylon was 15 miles square And it had walls on every side of the city that were 350 feet high. And get this, 82 feet thick, 82 feet thick, 82 feet thick. 350 feet high. And there were towers at 450 feet, so another 100 feet up above the wall, where they could see what was going on everywhere around them. And there were 100 bronze gates all the way around the city, and it was completely fortified. So when the Medo-Persian Empire began to march across that that area of the world and conquer and and besiege cities, it gets to Babylon. And remember, they didn't have bombs back then. They had battering rams. So they get to the wall and they go, I don't know, sir, it's not working. Uh, I believe they're fairly thick, sir. Depending on which historian you take, it's anywhere between two to four months of them trying to get into the city of Babylon and they can't do it. They can't do it. This is not Bible, this is just history, okay? They had already conquered King Nabonidus just a couple of days before. Remember, Nabonidus didn't hang out in Babylon. He was about 50 miles southeast of Babylon just a couple days before. They obliterated his army. They sent him into exile. So one of the two kings of the Babylonian empire is Dunzo. So the Medo-Persian empire, led by Cyrus the Great and Darius the Mede, get to the city of Babylon, and they're doing this for three months. <clears throat> <clears throat> And what's happening inside of that city is that they've stored up food for themselves, three or four years worth of food. And the Euphrates River runs right through the center of the city of Babylon, underneath the walls, in through Babylon. And so they have water, they have food. Clearly they have plenty of wine, right? They have everything that they need. They're completely fortified. And the king at that time, Belshazzar, is so comfortable inside his fortified city that he's just getting hammered with all his buddies, Just outside, Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Great goes, well, if we can't get through them, I wonder if we could get under them. So history tells us that on October 14th, 539 BC, is when it happened, Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Great take their army and they begin to divert water from the Euphrates River. And they divert it into a man-made marsh so that the level of the Euphrates River goes all the way down to about knee high and the armies of the Medo-Persian Empire just walk into the city of Babylon underneath the walls because they had diverted the water of the Euphrates River. Isn't that cool? They killed Belshazzar that night, just like Daniel 5 says, and they conquered everybody else in the kingdom and they became slaves to the Medo-Persian Empire, which is funny to me. It's, history tells us this. Daniel doesn't tell us, but history tells us this: that there was no fight. Like the, the 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 city of Babylon didn't fight back when the Medo-Persian Empire came over to overtake, came in to overtake them. You know why? Because drunk people don't fight back. Right? They come in, we are now conquering you and your slaves. You know, draw your swords. And everybody's like, I don't know, man, I'm pretty tired. We're good. I mean, this is what happened. Cyrus the Great uh, would eventually become king of the Medo-Persian Empire, the body of silver, the arms of silver, as uh, prophesied by the dream in Daniel chapter 2. Cyrus was much more, mm, let's say, amenable, (laughs) understanding of the plight of the... Hebrew people who had been in exile now for over 70 years. And he said, you know what, you guys? Is anybody interested in going back and rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem? Is anybody interested in going back and rebuilding the temple that was destroyed about 20 years after Nebuchadnezzar sieged Jerusalem in 605 BC and 586? They ended up sacking the temple, completely destroying it. That's when they took the vessels of the temple, all that stuff. Anybody interested in going back to do that? And a couple of guys named Ezra and Nehemiah said, well, I'd, I'd be game for that. And he said, all right, y'all go ahead. 150 years before the events of Daniel chapter five, the prophet Isaiah wrote, thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. You, do, you, do you get goosebumps? It's my second service and I get Goosebumps. 150 years before, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings. That's pants-pooping prophecy is what that is. To open doors before him that gates may not be closed, keep going. And I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break into pieces the doors of bronze. Do we remember those hundred gates all surrounding Babylon? And cut through the bars of iron, I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord God of Israel, who call you by your name. <laughs> Did I tell you I was excited this morning? How cool is this? So here's my question. You ready? So what? What is it? What? I mean, uh, we don't live in Babylon. I I don't believe I have any vessels of the temple at my home today, right? I think the so what for us really comes to the surface in Daniel's warning to King Belshazzar. He he says to Belshazzar, you've done three things. One, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. Essentially, he says to Belshazzar, you knew about Nebuchadnezzar. You watched him descend. Remember, he's Nebuchadnezzar's child, You watched him descend into lycanthropy. He thought himself a beast of the field. You watched God humble him. You knew, buddy. You knew about his conflict and about his going back and forth. And you knew that he eventually landed, that God is the only king and we should worship him alone. You knew and yet you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house. You have brought in before you, you and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. You have lifted up Yourself against the Lord of heaven. So, number one, you knew. Number two, you desecrated. You took what was supposed to be sacred and you made it profane and put it to use in your drunken orgy. That was not a good idea. Number three, you've praised the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. One, you knew. Two, you desecrated. Three, you praised the God of silver, gold, and bronze. You idolized. You put something in place of God and worshiped something other than the only God who deserves worship. Now, the great news about this is that in our modern culture today in 2020, we don't have any idols. So it just makes it easy not to apply Daniel chapter five. Or do we? I mean, maybe you don't have things carved of wood and stone and bronze. Maybe some of you do. Most of us don't. But let me explain to you really quickly the biblical nature of worship and thus the biblical charge not to have an idol. According to Romans 12 chapters 1 and 2 this is worship. Therefore, my brothers, in view of God's mercy offer your bodies as living sacrifices. So this is your spiritual act of worship is what Paul says. So worship is rearranging one's life in sacrificial submission. We talk about things like, man, the worship was really good today. What we mean was the songs are really good. We say stuff like, well, that person is really expressive in worship. What we mean is that they raise their hands in worship, and I only raise my hands like this much. Like I'm carrying a box. Like, uh, I don't know what that is, but that's why I raise my hand. That person is very expressive in worship. That is not a biblical view of worship. A biblical view of worship is rearranging one's life in sacrificial submission and, and the Bible says, you will worship something, so you should worship the only one who is worthy of it. Otherwise, you're worshiping an idol, and an idol is simply something that replaces God. Simply something that goes, uh, that, that instead of God on the throne of your life, receiving your worship and receiving your systematic reorganization of your life and sacrificial submission, you're sacrificially submitting to something else. And I want you to know that your worship is too heavy for an idol to carry. No matter what that idol is, if that idol is money, power, your spouse, your kids, your job, if you are rearranging your life systematically in order to pursue that particular thing and please that particular thing, eventually the weight of your worship will be too heavy for that thing and that thing will crumble underneath the weight of your worship. Let me explain something to you. There is one person in all the world that I love the most. That person is me. Then, I'm a sinner, That's what we do. Number two is Amy. I love Amy more than anything in the world. She loves me more than anything in the world. So I could say to her, I love you, I respect you, I honor you, I commit to you, I give my life to you. And she would say, I'm so grateful for that. I feel good, I would just respond in, 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 in love and affection to me and feel encouraged by that. But the minute I say I want to worship you and rearrange my life in sacrificial submission, how do you think that might make her feel? I'll tell you, she would do this motion right here, which is the motion she does when she panics. I don't know what that means because now I've exalted her to the point of an idol in my life and my worship is too heavy of a weight for her to carry. And she will collapse underneath the weight of it. So when I place my worship onto someone or something, I've got to make sure that that person or thing is able to carry the weight of my worship. Are you with me? So watch this. We're going to play the classic Canadian game show Name That Idol. It's a fun it's a fun game show. A fun game show and I'm going to give you a scenario and I want you to name the idol that's being worshipped in this scenario. Name the idol that people are reorganizing their life in sacrificial submission to a particular idol. Put five or six people in a room together. This is situation number one, right? Circumstance number one, scenario number one. Put five, six people in a room together. They're having dinner, they're having coffee, they're having a beer. They start talking about religion. And somebody says, you know what? I feel like all religions are equally valid. All religions have some type of truth. We should all just get along. I have the coexist bumper sticker on my car. And you know, there's not really many uh, differences between religions, not many distinct differences. They're pretty much all the same. There's an idol that's at work in that room and that idol is the idol of what? It's tolerance is what it is. That's the idol of tolerance. They've exalted that idol and and given deference to and sacrificially submitted to the idol of tolerance. Here's how I know that. Because those six people sitting around a table and dinner or whatever, let's say you put me, who's a religious professional, has a master's degree in Christian theology and you put an imam, and a Catholic priest and a Buddhist monk all in a room together and say, talk about religion. Now, we might like each other. We might share a lot of things in common. We might have a lot of things that we want to do for the world that are synonymous. I want to get along with those people, love those people. But you know what all of us would say in the room? Your religion my religion ain't the same. It's different. These six people over here are saying, oh, they're all the same. And the religious professionals are going, no, they're not. You've exalted the God of tolerance and and worship the God of tolerance and that God is going to collapse under the weight of your worship. I identified one particular God in my own life this week. I still struggle with idolatry. All of us do. Uh, And and I identified it when this thought literally went through my head this week. I was outside in our front walk and I thought to myself, I don't want to be rich. Like Kylie Jenner rich. I don't want to be rich. So the God is not money. I just want to be rich enough that I can pay someone else to shovel my snow. (laughs) Did anyone have that same experience this week? Yeah. What's the God? It's the God of comfort, isn't it? It's the God of comfort. I want my life to be comfortable. I want to go on vacation. I want to live in a good house. And we systematically reorganize our life in sacrificial submission to the God of comfort. And eventually the God of comfort will collapse under the weight of your worship. I come from a city in the United States where there are more plastic surgeons per capita than any city in the world. That's, that's real, that's real. Scottsdale, Arizona, more plastic surgeons. So that means people aren't getting normal implants, people are getting weird implants because you gotta have a lot of people getting weird implants to, to employ that many plastic surgeons. So one of the things they do, they do ab implants. It's like you see a real fat guy with abs. You're like, man, are those your abs? Like, yeah, I paid good money for them. Yep, they're mine, hmm yep. Very, very weird. Reorganizing our life, sacrificially submit to the God of what? Beauty, I have to look good, I have to look good. At one point you will not look good, I just wanna tell you that. There will be a day, today, today, just so you know, you look great, you look great. I just want you to know that, as your pastor. But one day you won't, that God of beauty will collapse. I can't tell you how many dollars that Canadians spend each year on entertainment The God of entertainment is alive and well in our culture. The God of freedom of expression and self-actualization is alive and well in our culture. We have elevated a freedom and selfhood and self-actualization to the point where it will collapse under the weight of our worship. Here's one more I wanna tell you and this is really fascinating. Let's say you got an individual who says, hey, you know what? I'm gonna systematically reorganize my life in sacrificial surrender so that I can attend church, attend Bible studies, so that I can pray, read my Bible, so that I can make sure that I do a lot more good things than I do bad things in order to earn the favor of God. What's the idol? Looks great on the outside. What's the idol on the inside? It's religion. It's religion. Friends, I hate to tell you, but but this can become an idol too. In Exodus chapter twenty, uh, when God says, "You shall have no other gods before me," He's not shaking His finger at us in shame. He's like, no other god before me. I want to be in the first place. God sounds like the Grinch all of a sudden. No other god before me. I'll regret that one tomorrow. What he's saying to us is this, look, friends. Um, he's, he's not saying this, I'll tell you this. The, the root word for worship is an old English word called weorthshepe, and it simply means to ascribe weight to. Your worship is too heavy for an idol. God's giving us this out of kindness, not out of shame and accusation. He's saying your worship is too heavy for an idol. I'm the only one that can carry the weight of your worship. And so, learn from Belshazzar, who worshiped the gods of wood and stone and bronze and iron. And not just that, he worshiped the gods of money. And he believed that Daniel would worship the god of money too. That's why he tries to buy him off. He worshiped the god of power, he worshiped the god of sex and violence, he worshiped the god of drunkenness and substance. He worshiped all those gods. And that night on October 14th, 539 BC, he met his maker. And the kingdom collapsed because every idol he had in place in his life, no matter how many he had, were fractured and broken. And the weight of worship is way too heavy for those idols to carry. Let's pray. God, our humble response today is we want to say that we worship you alone. We want to acknowledge and seek your forgiveness, oh God, for the times in which we exalt comfort and money and power and niceties and tolerance and whatever it is. God, may you show yourself and all your glory and all your strength and power. May you show yourself to us that you are the only one strong enough to carry the weight of our worship. And Jesus, you will never disappoint.